This is DIA Connections. One of the figures that I think American intelligence agencies really did not have their eye on throughout this time was the Shiite leader, Ayatollah Khomeini. The level of fascination, the intense level of interest, and I would add the level of concern that the American public had for the welfare of the hostages really can't be can't be uh, overemphasized. It was an obsession. I was told numerous times over that over the course of 14 and a half months that I was going to be eventually tried for espionage, and if found guilty, I was going to be executed. Compelling thoughts from our guests: author David Farber, legendary broadcaster Ted Koppel and former Defense Intelligence Agency Operations Coordinator and Iranian hostage Joseph Hall. All joined us to discuss a seminal moment in American history, the 1979 Iran hostage crisis. This is DIA Connections. For many, the 1970s are remembered as the decade of bad leisure suits and disco. But the times were, in many instances, as tumultuous as the previous decade, the 1960s, if only for a host of different reasons. In the mid-70s, the Vietnam War came to an unceremonious conclusion, as did a presidency. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. The 70s had both an oil and energy crisis. Unemployment and inflation rates were at record highs, and the popularity of American-made cars was declining. Ten years after the decade began with tragedy on the campus of Kent State University, it was ending in disaster at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. Dr. Denton does call this the most serious nuclear accident in the nuclear uh, industry history. By the end of the 70s, Americans were ready to move on. But not before one more event would occur that would significantly shape policy and history for decades. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. On November 4th, 1979, the United States embassy in Iran was no longer being controlled by Americans. Those unlucky enough to be inside at the time became hostages. Eventually, 52 Americans would remain in captivity for 444 days. Today, nearly 50% of DIA's 16,500 employees are stationed outside Washington, D.C. And although more than 40 years have passed since 1979, the mission remains the same, to provide intelligence on foreign militaries to prevent and win wars. Some of that work is done in combat zones and defense attache offices worldwide, and embassies. Sometimes those embassies can be in dangerous locations like Tehran was in 1979. That's where five members of the Defense Intelligence Agency were serving. Colonel Thomas Schaefer, Colonel Leland Holland, Colonel David Roeder, U.S. Navy Communications and Intelligence Specialist Dwayne Gillette, and Joseph M. Hall. Each became hostages that fateful day. In just a few minutes, you'll hear from former hostage Joseph Hall, our very special guest for this episode. He was kind enough to share his experiences in a conversation with DIA historian Paul Isaacson. But before listening to Mr. Hall, 
We wanted to get a better understanding of the circumstances that precipitated the event at the embassy. So we turned to another historian. Finally, 25 years after the coup, 26 years after, payback time against the United States by a lot of people in Iran. That's history professor David Farber. He authored a book titled Taken Hostage, The Iran Hostage Crisis and America's First Encounter with Radical Islam. Thanks for joining us, David. I want to begin by asking you a geography question, specifically about the part of the world where Iran is located. Why did the United States have or or need to have such a vested interest there? There was a sense, certainly in the United States and in Great Britain, that the Soviet Union had its eyes on Iran. So it's in part for that reason that the United States put so much energy and effort into trying to make an alliance with a friendly government, a friendly regime in Iran. So Iran is part of that Cold War process in which the Soviet Union and the United States were vying for power and control throughout so much of the global south, throughout so much of the world. And Iran was right in the middle of that Cold War. And that's why the United States put so much energy and so much resources and so much commitment to creating a friendly regime in Iran. And the Shah of Iran became that stalwart ally, that anti-Soviet ally for the United States. And how far back did the bond between the United States and the Shah of Iran go? The United States and Iran had a long and powerful relationship with one another, a relationship that began with the coup d'etat that took place in 1953, in which the United States helped the Shah of Iran take back the Peacock throne. And over that quarter century, the United States began to count more and more on Iran as a valuable ally in the Persian Gulf. That would hold true until the crisis began in 1978, when the Shah's regime came under massive protest from a variety of elements within the Iranian public. The social turmoil within Iran didn't deter American support. Listen to President Jimmy Carter's toast to the Shah on New Year's Eve 1977, which was broadcast on TV in Iran. This is a great tribute to you, Your Majesty, and to your leadership, and to the respect and the admiration and love which your people give to you. So David, was that an accurate portrayal of the situation taking place beyond the palace walls? The Shah of Iran was a secular figure. He was interested in modernizing Iran, He was interested in creating a far better educational system, a far better healthcare system. You know, there there was a lot of good about the revolution that the Shah thought he was creating, a secular revolution. But to do that, he created an autocratic regime. I mean, he was the Shah, there was no democracy. There were very minimal individual rights. So if you were a university student, a secular university student, and you crossed the Shah of Iran, The SAVAK, the Iranian intelligence agency, was most likely going to bring you to jail and maybe do some really dastardly things to you. After taking years of abuse from the Shah and his military, civil unrest in Iran reached the boiling point. Demonstrations, strikes, and mass protests erupted. And as the Shah's control over the population was deteriorating, so was his own health. By January of 1979, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who had ruled over Iran for 26 years, was forced to flee his own country. Khomeini was being helped down the steps of his chartered Air France jet to set foot on Iranian ground for the first time in 15 years. In a twisted tale dripping in irony, the Shah's exodus signaled the return of a dissident voice from Iran's past, someone whom the Shah had forced into exile several years earlier. Long live Khomeini! 
One of the figures that I think American intelligence agencies really did not have their eye on throughout this time was the Shiite leader Ayatollah Khomeini. Ayatollah Khomeini's name was the rallying cry that brought down the Shah. He would call America the Great Satan. And almost overnight, Iran had been transformed from a crucial U.S. ally into a bitter and dangerous opponent. For those of you who have never been to the Defense Intelligence Agency headquarters in Washington, D.C., which I'm guessing is almost everyone listening, I'll tell you that there is a beautiful auditorium called the Thai Auditorium, named after our former director from 1977 to 1981, Eugene Thai. In 1979, 31-year-old Joseph Hall had been in the Army for 11 years when he was selected to become operations coordinator at the embassy in New Zealand. But his plans and life were about to change as a result of a surprise meeting with that very same director, Ty. That's where we'll begin the odyssey of Joseph Hall, as he explains to DIA historian Paul Isaacson. So, Joe, you were just arriving back in D.C. for just a few weeks from your uh, former posting overseas, and you were supposed to be heading on to New Zealand, your next assignment, when you got word that the director... Uh, which you weren't even sure who that exactly was, was wanted to see you. You weren't even sure what director that was. I had two embassy assignments behind me and had never met anybody uh, within DIA above the, you know, the colonel level. And I remember saying dumbly, you know, uh, director what? The director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Well, I knew that it was a three-star general because we had our his pictures on every wall of every defense attache office, you know. Uh, I couldn't have told you his name at the time uh, off the top of my head, but uh, I learned it real fast that General Ty wants to see you. They they would needed somebody to go to Tehran when Tehran was falling apart, and I assumed that some desk officer said, you know, if we're going to get this guy to take this job, it's going to require a, a somebody, it's going to re- require a salesman. Well, what better salesman than the director himself? When a three-star general like that, the director of an agency, asks you, it's it's hard to say no, right? <laughs> it was. It was. Uh, you know, it was, it was part flattery and part uh, coercion, as I recall. But you know, the way I felt that you know, in the military, you get asked, especially as cordially as I was asked, to do something like that. You know, you can, you don't say no. You know, I, I I viewed it more of as a great career opportunity and a a thrill, also kind of a scary one, but you know, it, uh, it was something I was really willing to do. You're heading to Iran. What were you, again, before you even got there, what was your understanding of what your job responsibilities were going to be? And so I knew what my job was. Uh, the operations coordinator for the defense attache office basically runs the administration of the office. Uh, I, I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be until I got there, you know, because of uh, basically. Uh, it was difficult to do your job because uh, we were so restricted on travel and uh, because of the turmoil. Tell us about what it was like when you arrived. There were thousands and thousands of Iranians there wanting to, you know, seeking exile to the United States, looking for visas, and uh, there was uh, uh, attempts at bribery. I remember uh, on more than one occasion just walking through that back gate to get into the embassy compound, I was approached by uh, Iranian personnel wanting to know if I could help them get a visa. 
Uh, and then, you know, I remember one guy literally waved dollar bills in my face. And there's a sense of urgency, and it, uh, it was just getting uh, increasingly more intense. Did you have a feeling that something that was going to get worse, or did you have a bad feeling, or what was going through your mind? I really, I really did have a bad feeling. You know, it was uh, it had just been going on for so long. Or, uh, daily events that just seemed to get uh, uh, busier and louder every day. It, it was a, a powder keg. By this time, thousands of Americans with business interests in Iran left the country, and personnel at the embassy had been greatly reduced. On October 22nd, the Shah, who had been looking for refuge was finally admitted into the United States on emergency medical grounds by President Carter. When word of that news spread in Iran, a million or more people gathered to protest in Tehran. Here again is the author of the book, Taken Hostage, David Farber. From the American perspective, this was a humanitarian gesture, but a lot of Iranians saw this as against some sort of collusion, some sort of next step in creating uh, some kind of way in which the United States could help the Shah regain the peacock throne in Iran and over and, and destroy the, the, the revolutionary government there. And Ayatollah Khomeini, who's becoming ever more the central figure of power in Iran, basically agrees with that premise and gives a famous speech November 3rd, warning the Iranian people against American conspiracies and says that the United States is the enemy and that the Iranian people need to protest and demonstrate and prove that they will not allow another coup to take place against their own government. That's what leads post-haste, November 4th, 1979, to the takeover of the United States Embassy. Once again, here's Paul Isaacson with former hostage Joe Hall. Tell us about the day the embassy was overrun. We were all at work. Uh, you know, we, uh, everyone on the defense attache staff was there. Crowd started gathering outside the gate and was getting just unbelievably loud and boisterous. And it, it was literally just a sea of people out there. I remember listening to the Marines saying, it looks like they're trying to cut the gate, cut the, uh, cut the chains on the gate. There was just a just a unbelievable crowd of people squeezing through that, that gate into the embassy compound. And that's when we fired up the shredder and the incinerator and started burning material. I remember the uh, security officer coming online and said, open the door, they're gonna shoot me. And they opened the door uh, and to keep him from getting shot, and they all came inside the building. Of course, the uh, the Marines were wanting permission to shoot and kill, but uh, you know, the the folks upstairs in the ambassador's uh, office or the Charze's office, they were on the phone with Washington, and were told to do not try to defend yourselves. We don't need a loss of life here. Give it up. They put a gun at my head and took me away. They, uh, they tied my hands behind my back and they blindfolded me and they uh, marched me out of the embassy building over to what was uh, uh, the uh, ambassador's residence. 
Man, that must have been that must have been terrifying when they walked you out of there handcuffed. You must have not known what was going to happen next. I remember thinking, they're not going to get away with this. The government's going to step in here and take control of this. Not only our government, but whatever government of Iran that existed at the time. They're going to take control of this, and they're going to evacuate the rest of us, and I'm going to be home for Thanksgiving. It would, however, become apparent very early on in this ordeal that being home for the holidays was just not going to happen. After a short break, we'll explore why. This is DIA Connections. Russia. China. Iran. North Korea. Transnational terrorism. Do you know the threats? For more than 50 years, DIA officers have delivered defense intelligence expertise for our nation's leaders and warfighters. In the tradition of DIA's unclassified Soviet military power series, we bring you a new set of products that examines the greatest threats facing the U.S. today. Iran military power examines the core capabilities of Iran's military. Iran has expanded its capabilities and roles as both an unconventional and conventional threat in the Middle East. This report provides details on Iran's defense and military goals, strategy, plans, and intentions. Learn what DI's top intelligence experts have concluded about these complex threats and their potential impact on the United States and its allies. These assessments add an important viewpoint to the public conversation. Join us online. For the 52 hostages, including five from the Defense Intelligence Agency, the initial hours in captivity quickly became days, which turned into weeks. Almost immediately, attention focused on the organization responsible for maintaining international law, the United Nations. There was a long way to go before this new group uh, knew what it wanted to do and when and who was to do it. That's Donald McHenry, the United States ambassador to the United Nations. He was the ambassador for the entire length of the hostage crisis. We spoke to Ambassador McHenry, and he told us about his recollections from a decade earlier, which would prove to be a harbinger. I went to Iran in 1968 on a temporary assignment for the Libranada UN Conference on Human Rights. And uh, as I was prone to do when I went off on trips like that, I would try and get away from officialdom and uh, try and get my own ear to the ground uh, by talking with people on the streets. And it was pretty clear to me from talking with Peace Corps volunteers, uh, from talking with uh, people in the markets, that uh, the Shah was one unpopular man and that there was a great deal of unrest there. Diplomatic immunity is a widely accepted principle that assures protection for embassy personnel even when the sending and receiving nations do not enjoy friendly relations. As things went on, it became very, very clear that uh, there was no one with whom to negotiate. That is, no one uh, authoritative with whom to negotiate. There is no recognized religious faith on earth which condones kidnapping. There is no recognized religious faith on earth which condones blackmail. 
UN resolutions were ignored by the Iranian government, and the ambassador's frustrations were magnified due to his unfamiliarity with the new leader calling the shots. Well, I knew very little about the Ayatollah. Uh, it was a fast, uh, a quick learn for me. We were quite anxious to find some kind of way of uh, getting information about the Ayatollah. I remember uh, every Tom, Dick, and Harry who called the office uh, with some kind of information. You had to listen to them. You couldn't afford to not listen to them because they might be the one with the contact with the information. There is certainly no religious faith on earth which condones the sustained abuse of innocent people. We weren't going to get it anywhere until the lines of authority in Iran were established. Four, three, two, one. Happy New Year! First, 1980 in America. We have a brand new decade. It's a whole new beginning. Everybody, please kiss your loved one. Come on, kiss your But the new year, and in fact, new decade, did not bring resolution to the crisis for Joseph Hall and the other 51 hostages. Instead, the situation went from bad to worse as the hostage takers tried to ascertain information about their captives. They eventually understood who, who and what every individual in that embassy was responsible for. And there were, as I recall, there were 11 of us, including all of us in the defense attache office, that worked for one intelligence agency or another. And because of uh, help from some of our uh, American comrades who uh, I don't think they were traitorous by nature, I think they were dumb enough to be manipulated and they you know, wanted to be helpful. They, they helped identify everybody by their position. And uh, those of us that were identified as working for one intelligence agency or another, I, I know from my experience we were treated differently than others. We were, I was told numerous times over, that, over the course of 14 and a half months that I was going to be eventually tried for espionage, and if found guilty, I was going to be executed. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened to you in captivity and obviously what you're comfortable sharing, of course? The, the worst of it all for me was... Uh, was the interrogation and my interrogation started uh, about one month to the day after the embassy had been taken my interrogation lasted night and day for about 10 days i mean it wasn't 10 days continually but they'd badger me for hours at a time and then they would leave me in there to think about my uh, response and with the knowledge that they'd be coming back for me and uh and that was harrowing you know, it was uh, I, I was cold, and they left me in, they left me in there cold, you know, on purpose, and they just kept working on me, and they would present me with information that they had, wanting me to verify it, and uh, and and other, you know, wanting me to say things that they wanted me to admit truths, and they also wanted me to, uh, you know admit things that they had obviously manufactured. Uh, I remember one thing that uh, was a kind of a funny aspect of it was, uh, of course, they wanted to know what we were doing in the country. And uh, what they didn't understand is, you know, 
what we were doing for their country only benefited them as a country. I mean, the uh, Soviet Union was next door to them. That was our focus. I think just about everybody on that staff, embassy staff, had gone through at least one mock execution. And uh, the first one was literally the most terrifying thing that ever happened to me in my life to this day. Uh, they, you know, they stripped us of our, most of our clothing down to our pants and lined us up against the wall and uh, locked and loaded and counted down to, you know, 10 and left you there to believe that you're being killed at the end of the count and then didn't kill you. But uh, the, the, the effects of it were, were, were pretty draining. I remember it was a terrifying experience. Paul's months in captivity included isolation, not just from his fellow hostages, but from information as well. He had no idea about the Canadian caper, the joint covert rescue by the Canadian government and the CIA of six American diplomats who had evaded capture. It's a story you might be more familiar with if you're a fan of the movies. And the Oscar goes to... Argo. All the while, the hostages were continually told that they had been forgotten, that no one back home cared about them. As we know, nothing could have been further from the truth. School children sent letters by the thousands. Church bells rang at noon, and it seemed like every tree had a big yellow ribbon wrapped around it as a sign of solidarity. Americans were craving all the news they could get about the hostages, and that created an opportunity for ABC News and our next guest, legendary broadcast journalist, Ted Koppel. The level of fascination, the intense level of interest, and I would add the level of concern that the American public had for the welfare of the hostages really can't be, can't be uh, overemphasized. It was an obsession. It really was. When the event at the embassy occurred, Ted was the diplomatic correspondent for ABC News. At first, when he was asked to report to the studio to provide coverage, he didn't quite have a feel for the gravity of the situation. My reaction, which was heavily influenced by the fact that it was Sunday and I didn't want to go into the office, my reaction was, hey, you know, we had something like this about six months ago, uh, and it was all resolved in a matter of hours, and I really don't think I need to come in uh, it'll it'll take care of itself. Uh, and fortunately, the uh, the person on the assignment desk uh, had a better grasp of what was going on than I did, and said, "No, I really think you should come in." I did a report for that evening's newscast in which I said essentially the same thing. Not to worry, this was going to be over pretty quickly. We now know that didn't happen, and beginning November eighth. And on each night after the late local news, ABC aired specials updating viewers on the latest developments. The show originally titled America Held Hostage eventually became Nightline, hosted by Ted Koppel. This is ABC News Nightline. Reporting from Washington, Ted Koppel. Good evening. This is a new broadcast in the sense that it is permanent and will continue after the Iran crisis is over. You know, the fact that that Nightline became uh, a program that routinely 
competed with what until then had been um, a program that had no competition whatsoever, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. From Hollywood, The Tonight Show, starring... You know, that a news program could compete with the most popular late-night television program that had ever been on the air um, was really unexpected. Simply put, Nightline was the place Americans turned to for the latest news from Iran. It became a must-watch for not only public citizens, but public servants. 1980 was an election year, and how the crisis was handled became paramount in the minds of voters. To begin with, the Carter White House clearly saw this as a situation that, while it was uh, very dangerous in terms of uh, the security of the Americans who were being held hostage, it was advantageous to the president in terms of his campaign. After a few weeks, they began to realize that it didn't work out that well, uh, that he was beginning to look um, incapable of dealing with the situation, uh, that it was not going to be resolved in short order. Uh, and far from being an advantage, it became a disadvantage. So by the time Nightline began as a permanent program in March of 1980, by that time the, the Carter White House had long ago decided that this was not advantageous to the president. Uh, and they were not crazy about the, the constant coverage. Week after week after week. Day 142 of the But you do have to understand that to begin with, they were all in favor of this round-the-clock coverage. By mid-April, there was still no apparent end in sight. Here's author David Farber. For Khomeini and the revolutionary government holding Americans, humiliating Americans, this became good political theater for them. And there was growing concern that holding Americans hostage for month after month could lead to some really bad results, which is to say some of those hostages could die, could be killed. And so there became a great debate within the United States government, a polarizing debate between those who wanted to just keep maintaining a kind of endless negotiated stance to try to bring a resolution to those who thought only a military rescue would do the job. That rescue attempt came on April 24th, 1980. It was ordered by President Carter. The name was Operation Eagle Claw, and the result was a disaster. Two of our American aircraft collided on the ground following a refueling operation in a remote desert location in Iran. Eight of the crewmen of the two aircraft which collided were killed. And at that point, the Iranians decided to move the hostages out of the embassy and secret them in various places, making a military operation I guess probably essentially impossible at that point. For the hostage takers, the attempted rescue initiated an immediate response. From April 24th until somewhere around the 1st of June, it was just a, uh, a long series of uh, night moves where every two or three days they would handcuff you, blindfold you, throw you in the back of a truck. Or the, A couple of times I was literally in the trunk of a car being moved for endless miles until the next spot. And they spread us out in small groups of anywhere from two to four people, as I understand. 
kept us moving so that we could not we would not all be in one place if they were to mount another rescue attempt. How did you even know about that rescue attempt? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't know what had happened until November when I found out what had transpired in April. And that was a rude awakening. I thought, my goodness, you know, what, six months earlier, they tried to rescue us and failed and we're still here. Man, we're in deep kimchi. You know, this could go on for a while. Was there was there any talk of escape, trying to escape? Well, you know, I, I've always been pretty geographically aware of the world. And I knew the closest border was a long damn ways away. And I knew the Gulf was a long ways away. We, had, we didn't have adequate clothing. It was wintertime. We had no money. We had uh, none of the three of us could speak Farsi. And, and the, the very notion of, uh, th- of it getting so desperate that we would try to attempt scared the heck out of me. But, I mean, we were, we were really talking about it seriously uh, as, as our last resort. Were you aware of the U.S. presidential election, you know, between, between Carter and Reagan? Yeah, somehow or another, I had become aware of who the candidates were. We had learned that uh, Reagan had been nominated. We were all in favor of Reagan because he had made the announcement that he was going to end this, the Iranian hostage situation one way or another. And one of our Iranian captors had told me that. I mean, I remember being told that Reagan said that if he's elected, he will end it. And as it got closer to the election, we could uh, we could tell there was uh, some nervousness. And after the election, when he had been elected, uh, the whole situation changed because we were suddenly moved out of that prison. We were moved out of one of those two prisons into what I understood had been the Shaw's guest house. This was moving uptown, going into that room because it had its own bathroom, you know, like one of the better Holiday Inn suites. It was like that, had couches and uh, uh, rugs on the floor and hot and cold running water in the bathroom, you know. That would be a market improvement, I would think, yeah. It was, we knew something, uh, they weren't telling us, you know, uh, what was transpiring, but uh, we knew, things had gotten better. The drums and bugles signal the moment the record crowd of over 100,000 has been awaiting. The entrance of President-elect Ronald Reagan. By Inauguration Day, January 20th, 1981, the U.S. had agreed to unfreeze Iranian assets and not intercede in Iran's internal affairs. In the end, the Khomeini-led government believed they had successfully humiliated Jimmy Carter in the United States and no longer had any use for the hostages. With the help from the Algerian government, who aided in negotiations and supplied aircrafts, Joseph Hall was now en route to freedom. We pulled up in this bus and you could hear a jet engine cooking out there. We sat there on that bus for a, a, a period of time, you know, handcuffed and blindfolded still, telling us to be quiet, don't talk, uh, shut up. From there, uh, a few minutes later, they seized me by the arm and led me down the aisle. And when I got to the bottom of the steps of the bus, they took my handcuffed and blindfolded blindfold off. And I literally ran a gauntlet of personnel, people, from uh, the, the steps of that bus to the steps of the airplane. And it was just, it was all kind of staged. It was one last humiliation where they were kind of slapping at us and uh, swatting us and uh, thumping us as we uh, headed for the aircraft. 
Once I got to the bottom of those steps, Algerian Air Force took over and they weren't allowing anybody on their plane other than us. They got us all on that thing and after what seemed like ages, the doors closed. We taxied away and uh, lifted off. The Algerian, uh, they made us keep the windows of the airplane closed. Uh, we couldn't look out there. They asked us to remain quiet and calm, which we did for a while. And after about, seemed like about 25 or 30 minutes in the air, the pilot came on and told us that we had just left Iranian airspace and that you're welcome to look outside the windows of the airplane. And we opened up our shutters and outside off of each wing, we had a U.S. Air Force jet escorts. <laughs> and uh, it's a wonder we didn't wreck the plane with the rambunctiousness and the, uh, just uh, the exuberance we all expressed at that, at that moment, you know. The, it was a re remarkable feeling. I just was getting goosebumps. Literally, I just got goosebumps. Well, I, after all this time, I, uh, it could still bring me to tears. After 444 days, they were free. And after a stopover in Germany for debriefings and medical checkups, it was on to the United States, where one of the other hostages from the Defense Intelligence Agency was bestowed a great honor. As we entered U.S. airspace, on the flight from Germany, uh, as we got close to the U.S. airspace, they invited Colonel Tom Schaefer up there to fly the jet. He, he got to fly us into uh, U.S. airspace and uh, where they took over and landed the plane. After the parades and the medals, the gifts, and meeting two presidents, Joseph Hall had a very successful career both in government and the private sector. He told us that he got more positives from his experience as a hostage than negatives. Amazing. And he also wanted to make sure we knew this. I have to tell you, you know, I had nine years with DIA as a, my parent agency, and it's an experience that uh, you can't buy. You know, with three embassy assignments, and I visited a couple other embassies on TDY during that period of time, and every one of them, there was something going on. It was a job that uh, you never went home at night thinking that, you didn't make a difference, even though, you know, you, my part in it was uh, minuscule. You felt like you were doing the right thing, you know. Thank you, Mr. Hall. You are truly a hero and an inspiration. To learn more about the Defense Intelligence Agency, please check us out on our social media pages and DIA.mil. Thanks for listening to DIA Connections. <laughs>